You're listening to another New Hope Chapel, New Hope podcast. Chapel podcast. Hi, this is Justin Hibbert, pastor of New Hope Chapel. Thanks so much for listening. Today you'll be hearing from Steve Coleman, an elder and member of our teaching team, as he continues our series on Hosea called Redeeming Love. Good morning. Uh, nice Memorial Day weekend, spectacular weather. Uh, I'm glad I didn't bring in the chairs for all the hordes of visitors coming to the Annapolis area that would visit our church on Sunday. Instead, we've taken a little bit of a loss, but that's okay. Uh, a fine Memorial Day, day, the weekend that contains the day where we commemorate, think about all those who served in the armed forces and, um, and those particularly who died in service to our country to provide us the freedoms and everything that we have. Uh, we, wouldn't be, we wouldn't have much in the way of character if we didn't think about them, remember them, and be grateful to them. Now, I threw that in because it fits in with this message. <laughs> You'll find things will fit like that this morning. Uh, we are on our fifth episode in the story of Hosea and Gomer and the story of God and Israel. Most of the story has been told, the story per se. We've had uh, Hosea told by God to marry Gomer, who was an unfaithful wife and uh, had some children and then left Hosea, a very public leaving. Gomer's a picture of unfaithful Israel, and God tagged that early on. God then directed Hosea to go get her and show her love again, to buy her back. And God's going to apply this part of the story to Israel's eventual restoration. And that's going to be covered in our last episode of the story that Scott's going to bring us next week. Uh, What I have tucked in the middle here is the judgment against Israel. So let's talk about that. What went wrong? We have to take a bit of a step back and think about Israel and who they are. Uh, We go back to Genesis 11. Abraham called was called by God. Abraham was given very specific promises that a nation, he would father a nation, that nation would be uh, God's and have a very special uh, place and a special blessing. We find Israel at the end of Genesis, ending up in Egypt. Uh, That situation turns ugly. uh, Israel ends up in slavery, suffering for several hundred years, and God raises up Moses, and through Moses delivers the people, and uh, after marching through the desert, they they get to the promised land. In the course of that, God gives his law, and God uh, also communicates to Moses and to the people his ultimate goal for them. He says uh, in Exodus 20 that he wants Israel to become a nation of priests that will be uh, the representative of God on earth to reach all nations for him. You know the end of the story. Israel doesn't really uh, fulfill that. And uh, we've got a big piece of that story right here today. Anyway, Joshua takes over from Moses. They settle in the land. Along comes, we have the period of the judges, and then along comes the kings, period of the kings. And we have David and very special promises given to him, again, that uh, give Israel a place, give Israel certain uh, 
blessings and promises that will be fulfilled in the future. Let's take a look at that period of the kings. As I said, the period of judges came before this, so we're picking it up right here with the first king, Saul. And there were three kings in succession, Saul, David, and then Solomon, David's son. When Solomon dies, the kingdom splits, and ten tribes rebel and go off on their own and become the northern kingdom. Two remaining tribes, Judah and Benjamin, uh, remain with the southern kingdom, become the southern kingdom. And it's referred to as Judah, will be referred to by me, and is often referred to in Scripture as Judah, the northern kingdom, and that's who uh, Hosea is prophesying to, the, those ten nations, is called Israel. And, and when I say the word Israel from now on, that's what I'm referring to, is this northern kingdom, not Israel as a whole. So we have Jeroboam is the first uh, stick man that's up there. He was the first king of the northern kingdom. And I have him up there because he's, uh, there's something relevant to what Hosea says that has to do with Jeroboam. When Jeroboam came in, uh, he set up worship uh, in the northern kingdoms, uh, in Dan and then in Bethel, down in the Samaritan region. He set up a golden calf in each of those places for Israel to worship. Now this is um, too soon. This is the uh, period of the kings, which lasts about 100 years. The northern kingdom goes on for 200 years before it ends, here at the end of the book of Hosea. And the southern kingdom goes for an extra 100 years beyond that before uh, they come to their end. And at the end of the book of Hosea, effectively, uh, and we, we know this uh, uh, historically, 722, Assyria swoops down and conquers the northern kingdom. And we'll talk about uh, that using a map in a little bit. The point is, Jeroboam uh, started this worship of the golden calves. It continued all the way to Hosea's time. Hosea's the last guy on here. I threw these other figures because they're, they're notable and you'll recognize them. These two figures represent Elijah and Elisha who operated in the area of the northern kingdom. And these two figures represent two of the prophets. first one's Jonah and the second one Amos. And then Hosea comes here at the end with this prophecy about Israel. This Assyrian captivity is a major event, as is the Babylonian captivity that comes 100 years later. Uh, this Assyrian, uh, Assyrian captivity is particularly uh, notable because the people that get carried off from here, um, let me say it the other way, the, the southern kingdom gets carried off by Babylon. And later this year, I believe on the schedule, is a series on Nehemiah. And when we read about Nehemiah, that's the people coming back to the land after the captivity. Well, it's Judah here coming back from the Babylonian captivity that you'll read about in Nehemiah. There's never a return, an official return, from the Assyrian captivity. So sometimes people call these the ten lost tribes. I don't think we ought to get too worried because 
uh, just like we do now, there were people from every tribe sort of in different places in Israel during this time. For example, how many people were born and or raised outside of Maryland? Can I see your hands? Can, I, can you name a few states? That's Minnesota. Love that. Tennessee. Ah, oh, love Tennessee. Even, even better than Minnesota. Yeah. Texas. I'm not going to say about Texas. Their head's big enough as it is. Uh, Rhode Island. Love Rhode Island. The other end of the spectrum. Yeah. Big Apple, New York. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I'm, I'm from Virginia. So we, even though this is Maryland, and if Maryland got carried off into captivity, uh, we'd have people, at least whose allegiances, if states were tribes in America, we'd have people from a, a, a variety of people from different tribes. So you still have, in the, in the return from Babylonian captivity, you still have people from all 12 tribes. And that's why you still uh, read about them. And, and have the genealogies and so forth in the, in the New Testament Gospels. Okay, that's about as much as we can do with that. And the worship was the golden calf, uh, again, set up by Jeroboam and lasted the entire 200-year period of the northern kingdom. They set it up because um, they wanted to have a worship center, or two worship centers in this case, that were distinct from Jerusalem. They were rebelling after all. We're our own kingdom here. So they said, we're going to set up worship up here. Well, they picked the golden calf. I don't know why. Connected to the the bad move by Aaron when the law was given to set up a golden calf for the Israelites there. Um, In any event, idol worship at its finest. Well, we're going to start today right where Justin left off in chapter 6, verse 4. And... Uh, God says to Israel, your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. When you go on your date night, this is not the thing to say to, <laughs> to the person. It's not really a compliment. I'm reminded of the summer days that we can have here uh, when you get the upper 90s, hazy, hot, humid. You know how those are. And once in a while, depending on how the temperature, air temperature, ground temperature work, you can get a little dew in the morning, but by 9.30, 10 o'clock, it's burned off, and you swelter all day long. Well, that's what God's saying. Not only is your love really not here, you know, it's pretty faint, it's pretty uh, um, delicate stuff, but there's this promise that you get with the dew. It's like, ooh, a little bit of a cool morning, okay, maybe things will be okay today, a little refreshing, and that promise disappears. So not only is the love not there, but there's a promised love that, that has created a, a great disappointment. Well, you know, God, uh, that's about the nicest thing God says at this point. You know, there's an article that came out this week from the Associated Press, and the headline reads... GM bans words from being used in writing about safety issues. The subtitle, language such as death trap might hurt the company, training document says. <laughs> and apparently there's a list of words. It, it, it has a backstory to it. GM's been slapped with a fine for not reporting a safety violation. 
So GM uh, is trying to be helpful and is training their people to be careful not to use some some words that might trigger further uh, investigation or alert alert folks. So words like safety, chaotic, problem are on there. Bad, terrifying, dangerous, horrific, and evil are on the list. This is the quote from GM. They said the flowery language simply wasn't helpful in getting to the root of the problem, saying, quote, This is a lawsuit waiting to happen, for example, isn't as useful as saying windshield wipers did not work properly. Well, Detroit may be concerned about the words it uses. God is not concerned. He has no bans when it comes to the words he uses when he talks about Israel. He says they're decayed. They devour their rulers. Um, they, They... are arrogant. Justice is so corrupted because they lie and, and have lawsuits that he says their lawsuits are like poison weeds that crop up in a plowed field. He said their strength is being sapped by the foreign nations. Their hair is turning gray and they is sprinkled with gray and they, they don't even know it. And of course, that's the, the sample one. Ephraim is blighted. Their root is withered. They yield no fruit. He says they're ruined. Not only when they plant their crops, when they go to to get uh, uh, the grapes from the vineyard and so on, not not only is there no harvest, but it's a, a complete reversal of fortune. They sow the wind, weep the whirlwind. Stalk has no head. So when it grows, no head, it will produce no flower. Maybe meant literally, but certainly also figuratively. Ephraim, another name for Israel that God uses. Israel uh, is completely unproductive, completely ruined. They may be there, but there's nothing there. There's no head. There's no um, flower. Were it to yield grain, foreigners would swallow it up. And they were uh, being hammered by the nations around them. Further, they're spiritually defiled. You know, he's talked about them having false religion and and being adulteresses and the prostitution. They consecrated themselves, devoted themselves to a shameful idol. He identifies it later as the calf. Although there were a number of idols that they followed. They followed a number of idols from the various countries that were around them. But get this. Do not rejoice, Israel. Do not be jubilant like the other nations. For you have been unfaithful to your God. You love the wages of a prostitute at every threshing floor. So not only has Israel gone and spiritually speaking been a prostitute. That's one level. But the other level is, you know, the prostitutes that get together where men gather at the sheep shearing at the threshing floor. And she's... You know, counting her wages, saying, okay, next year, circle the calendar. I'm, I want these wages. They, they want the results of that without realizing that, as a member of my class this morning said, when we sin, sin destroys the soul. And that's what God's trying to get at. By the way, the, our, my class continues to go through the summer, 10 o'clock, back in the room right behind here. 
we're going through Matthew, but that's, that's, what we, that's where we're going. But really our discussion is all about synthesizing information, talking about the Bible, talking about issues that connect with that. Love to see you there. Uh, and then he says they're completely corrupted. And this is how far they've gone. The people who live in Samaria fear for the calf idol of Beth-Aven. Its people will mourn over it, and so will its idolatrous priests, those who had rejoiced over its splendor because it is taken from them into exile. They love their idolatry so much, they're upset because the calf is, is going to get taken, it's going to get torn down when they go into exile. That's how completely corrupted they are. Uh, it's interesting when he talks about Beth Aven. There's no such town. What Beth Aven means is house of wickedness. One, the, the, the one calf was in Bethel, house of God. Hosea is saying, you call it Bethel, it's a Beth Aven. It's a house of wickedness. And you're so corrupted that you grieve losing the idol and don't grieve the loss of me. You know, there's a lot of sources of pride among states. And uh, most North Carolina license plates designs talk about being first in flight. But a, a couple of decades ago, several decades ago, uh, they had license plates that said first in freedom. Now that might be a baffler to most of us. We, we all know Fort Sumter in the Civil War. We know Lexington and Concord up in... You know, North Carolina hasn't been the start of things that we can remember. But, you know, uh, that's, what, that's what they claim. That's their claim to fame in their eyes. You have to look no further than their flag. The state flag contains two dates, May 20th, 1775, and April 12th, 1776. May 20th, Mecklenburg County, North Carolina, in 1775, after hearing about the Battle of Lexington, they were the first Americans to declare independence from Great Britain, a county standing on its own. They actually call it Mecdeck Day for Mecklenburg Declaration Day. Uh, later, about a year later, North Carolina as a state adopted the Halifax Resolves. They were the first colony resolution which allowed its delegates to the Second Continental Congress to vote for independence. Now, Virginia was the commonwealth that first, first passed a resolution that allowed its delegates to bring forward as a proposal that the colonies write a Declaration of Independence and go forward. But I'm just quibbling now. <laughs> They're very proud of this. And, and perhaps they have good reason to. Even though they were, they were rebellious actions, they not only took these actions, but they've remained proud of them to this day. Israel was proud of its idol worship. That's where they not only they crossed the first line, they crossed the second line with God. They were proud of this idolatrous tradition and idolatrous action. Okay, well, we've heard what's gone wrong with Israel. Well, what's going to happen? This is a major event in the life of Israel. I've mentioned uh, one part of it. And that is that uh, Israel here in Samaria was taken 
into captivity by Assyria. Assyria is up in this area, uh, north of Israel, up where Nineveh is. Babylon is about due west of Israel, across the Arabia Desert. And so you can, the 100 years later, Judah uh, gets carried away to Babylon, and it's from Babylon that Nehemiah and Ezra come back to Jerusalem to rebuild Jerusalem. But the captives from Samaria were taken two different places, one up here way north, some were taken, and others were taken over here past Nineveh and out to an area called Media. Uh, what, they don't, what this map doesn't show is what Assyria did is transplant people. They took people from um, uh, down on this edge between Babylon and Assyria and from up here just north of Israel and transplanted them back down in Samaria. What's the significance of that? Remember in the Gospels the whole time? They talk about the Samaritans as being half-breeds and so on. That's because of this. The people they transplanted back here intermarried with folks that were left behind uh, from, the, uh, from the captivity here and became half-Jewish, partially Jewish, mixed in with this, this group. And that remained all the way to the day of Christ. So they were, uh, God calls them like senseless, easily deceived doves that were caught in a net, like a faulty bow that breaks in the battle. Uh, they, were, they are prey for the nations, and that's just what happens. And God's further uh, judgment on them is that he is removing them from the land. Uh, Ephraim will eat, return to Egypt and eat unclean food in Assyria. Why the reference to Egypt? Well, he does that throughout these chapters. Egypt, metaphorically talking about captivity, hard labor. Uh, so just like going back to Egypt, Ephraim's going to Assyria, and they're going to be uh, uh, completely out of Israel, out of the land, away from their ability to follow the cultural things there. And then uh, in Hosea 9.17, he goes further and and indicates they will be wanderers among the nations, which really turn, has turned out to be true largely for uh, these ten tribes as well as the, the nation of Israel that came back during Christ's time. Now, what's important to note here is that this punishment, it's not, it's not focused on punishment, but it's fo- focused on corrective actions, let me, on, on being corrective. And, and let, me, let me tell you why I think that. Uh, first of all, Justin thought that when we, he came up with this, and he called this whole series Redeeming Love. You have the story of Hosea, who although the wife leaves, although the wife had children, likely, outside of marriage, and left and was engaged probably in prostitution, God tells Hosea, go back and buy her and bring her back. God always has his people on an ark, a story ark, that ends up with redemption. We know that from reading in the New Testament and in the book of Revelation where Israel is so prominent in the prophecies there. And he he says here in Hosea 10, 12, Sow for yourselves 
Sow righteousness for yourselves. Reap the fruit of unfailing love. Break up your plowed ground. It's time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers his righteousness on you. Now, I can't go any further along this line or else I'll steal Scott's thunder for next week. And I won't do that. So let's switch gears. What does this mean for you and me? How can we apply the great judgment that came on Israel uh, in our day to our lives? That's a challenge. Well, certainly, we're meant to learn from Israel's history. First Corinthians, it talks about that, to learn um, so that we don't, to learn from these examples so that we won't set our hearts on evil things as they did. Well, a cautionary note in applying these things is we can't, we can't make the logical leap of saying, okay, well, that was Israel, they had promises. Okay, this country had, kind, had a Christian base, so those promises now are our promises. We're not Israel. You don't read Revelation and read about, well, here's the 144,000 Jews, and then here's America, and then here's the, the great number of people from other nations. No, you don't find America in the prophecies. America doesn't have the, um, the promises Israel had. Uh, we are, we were founded on Christian principles. There's a lot of Christians in this country. But God's working during this age with an, an organate, organization, an organism he calls the church. And that church is not synonymous with the nation. It's a church that is composed of people that live in all kinds of countries and all kinds of states, as we found here this morning. And the church has a little different uh, experience than Israel too. The church isn't synonymous with Israel. Israel had specific promises, but the church has been made alive in spirit, individual by individual, been given Christ's righteousness, been placed in the body of Christ. We have been given the Holy Spirit individually as um, a deposit on our salvation. Never given to Israel except temporarily to achieve some job. Individuals had it temporarily. We're seated in the heavens, positionally, we're told. We're adopted. So this isn't a foster care scenario. It's an adoption where we've been made children of God. So we have to put, do the application carefully. But the question is, can we ruin ourselves like Israel did? Well, that's an interesting question. Seems so. You know, Justin showed us a video last week to help recognize that anything that takes precedence in our lives can be considered an idol. The Old Testament uh, equates idolatry with rebellion. That rebellion is the same thing as idolatry. So rebelling against God is the same. You know, we're told in the New Testament not to be conformed to the world. We're told also that we should not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. In the message to the churches in Revelation, God tells Ephesus they've left their first love. Taps right back to this theme in Hosea. Love for God. And also we read in the message to the church of Laodicea that their works were neither hot nor cold and he said, I'll spew you out of my mouth. So there certainly are ways that we can fail to follow 
and become useless. Jesus implies that when he talks about us being the salt of the earth. He said if the salt becomes useless, if, it, if it's good for nothing, then if it's lost its saltiness, it's only good for throwing away. It comes down to our heart attitude with God. I've got a clip I want to show uh, from a movie. The, um, it's an old movie, The Princess Bride. Is anybody that hasn't seen that or doesn't know about that? Well, that's what I was told <laughs> with a voice from here to that. I was told it's an iconic movie. And this is, let me set this up. It is the um, Princess Buttercup. Uh, has been has felt forced into agreeing to marry the king, and so there's a sequence here where we see evidence of her guilt about that. You know, the theme of the Princess Bride really is true love. Princess Bride is about the book of Hosea. You ought to watch it again. Uh, but that's where we are. We've we've got this uh, scene which uh, ends up being a dream. But go ahead. I present to you your queen. Queen Buttercup. Why do you do this? Because you had love in your hands and you gave it up. But they would have killed Wesley if I hadn't done it. Your true love lives, and you marry another. True love saved her in the fire swamp, and she treated it like garbage. And that's what she is, the queen of refuse. So bow down to her if you want. Bow to her. Bow to the queen of slime, the queen of filth, the queen of putrescence. Boo! Boo! Rubbish, filth, slime, muck. Boo! Boo! So it's her, it's her dream, and she's got this inner concern, this guilt that she feels because she knows she's acted inconsistent with the true love that Wesley had promised her. Um, can we ruin ourselves like Israel did? Sure we can, if we're not careful and we betray God's love. And it's all about heart attitude. Israel had betrayed it completely and utterly. True love saved Buttercup from the fire swamp, and she betrayed it. So there's guilt for her, but she, based on this dream, then changes her action, puts her on the right track, and true love does then win out. With God, there's always a redemptive arc. So then the question becomes, for us, will we be disciplined? Should we be listening? Should we station somebody in the cafe to listen for the knock on the front door? The Assyrians are here. Is that going to happen? That's another interesting question. God's operations in the Old Testament, God's operations in the New Testament. All I can tell you is, looking at the various... uh, through Paul's letters in the Gospels, looking at, at what God says, 
This is what I've come up with. First of all, where Jesus tells us, met it using a parable of, of vines and, um, uh, and grapes, but he said, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, so it will bear more fruit. So there's a, there's a way in which even if we are um, focused on God and we're, we're pursuing his will, that we might find parts of our lives that, that get, get pinched a little bit. That's what that seems to indicate. Secondly, we're told that parents that love their children discipline them. Hebrews 12 says, My son, don't make light of the Lord's discipline, and don't lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone that accepts his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. And if we don't get disciplined, he said, you know you're illegitimate. Because that's the way it works. God's in the process of molding us, trying to change our character, trying to keep our heart, and, and teach us about his ways. Now, now we get into some more extreme ones. We do read Jesus talks about a sin that will not be forgiven. A sin against the Holy Spirit. No time to deal with it this morning. That's a good subject all by itself. But I can tell you, my conviction is, as I look at that passage, I don't think that sin can be committed today. My opinion, my conviction. One day we need to talk about it, though. Third one, or the last one, the other type of extreme discipline I read is in 1 Corinthians 5. And Paul says, there's actually reported that there's immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has or is sleeping with his father's wife, his stepmother. He said, you, talking to the church as a whole, you have become arrogant and have not mourned Instead, so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. And then he says, here's what I'm directing. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Interesting. Let me talk about that one in just a minute. There's a second one that's similar in 1 Timothy. Paul writes to Timothy, fight the good fight, keep the keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. So these three people are the three cases in the New Testament where you find Paul in both all cases has handed them over to Satan. Well, Wow. One thing to note about those, there's always a redemptive arc. Paul handed over to Satan, in the first case, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. That was the purpose, according to Paul, for handing this person over to Satan so that his spirit may be saved. And in the case of Hymenaeus and Alexander... He says, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. 
Well, you know, we, we don't send murderers in states that do this to the electric chair to teach them something. No, the teaching's done. It's over. He's, he's handing them over to Satan so they will be taught. That's, that's a redemptive arc. These people, Hymenaeus and Alexander, need to be jolted, need to be taught for a good redemptive purpose. So even in the strongest discipline that you read in the New Testament, there's a redemptive arc. Of course, that's what's in the Old Testament too. Being carried away into captivity was something that to teach the people. We read in, in the Gospels, Israel gets back to the land, is there for 400 years, and they still really haven't learned it when Christ comes. But he comes and inaugurates this period of church history and, um, and the church is in operation now. We read Israel joining the church uh, in the book of Revelation as they talk about that. Always a redemptive storyline. And you know, we're secure in that storyline. There's a lot we could look at to talk about that. Romans 8, where it talks about security there. The Gospel of John, 1 John, even the book of 1 Corinthians. That is a bad, bad church. And yet, even the worst of them, it was so his spirit may be saved. They're called saints. Paul refers to them as saints. It's amazing when you read the problems. But let's just look at Jesus' focus. And I'm going to read here from Ephesians. um, At his focus for us. Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water, with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. There's one lesson to be learned from Israel. It's we need to keep ourselves from idols. We need to guard our hearts. We need to acknowledge God and recognize the tremendous redeeming love that he has for us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you most of all for uh, the, the, the wonderful lesson of Hosea and the, the things that you want to encourage our hearts with this morning. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples, and He is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.